I'm a reformed accountant and economist who thought that numbers were more important than people. I think we all belong somewhere. And I think we all belong in a physical location. I think we all belong in relationships. And I think we all belong in particular careers. I'm not afraid of failure, provided I'm willing, and I do this in my coaching. I say to people, you should never see failure as losing. You should always see failure as an opportunity to learn. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. We do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so ladies and gentlemen it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today she's a bit of a wild card ladies and gentlemen (laughs) ladies and ladies and gentlemen Avril Henry, great to have you here, Avril. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is so much fun. Avril, I've got to say, it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, we met, gosh, it was last year. It, was, it would have been like nine months, six months, nine months ago now, where you came in and you spoke yep. for our K2 elites and you absolutely blew them away, not just with your understanding of um, recruitment, HR and leadership, but just also with your authentic style and personality. So I'm super excited. Yeah. Paul's scared about where this could go, but uh, <laughs> I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I just wish we had actually. You should be scared. I should have sent you some rosé. You and before. me together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the only thing that's missing is a, is a, is a couple glasses of rosé and uh, then it would be an absolutely on. That's right. On and on. But look, something, Avril, that I always ask um, guests when they come on is like when you're at a dinner party, you know, when you're at a barbecue and, and, and someone comes up to you and says, so what do you do? Now, I look at your, your history and it's like, <laughs> how do you fucking answer that question? In a way that, <laughs> in a way that you can actually do so, in a, you know, in a period of time where you don't need to be booking multiple dinners to explain it. I'll tell you a funny story though. It really depends on the people. So if people are genuinely interested in what it is that I do, then I'll talk about starting my career as an accountant and economist and how, quite by. Um, chance, although I think chance and luck are often created when an opportunity presents itself and you're willing to have a go and you're not afraid of failing. And then I change careers into change management, HR and diversity. So I'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of the cool things I do now, like coaching ambassadors and the chief of army and hanging out with people who we should be scared of, but they're scared of me. <laughs> that's kind of funny. And that's the thing. I love the fact that you, you do work and you do coach with very high level people. And that's something as, yeah. a, as a coach, it's not easy to do. You've got to have a level of positioning, yeah. a level of authority, but also yeah. a level of um, yeah. communication style, which I've seen you possess. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but if I if if I'm at a party where people are being really snotty and they want to put you in a box, and I did this once a few years ago, I said that I worked for Qantas, and they asked me if I did I um, was I flight attendant, and I said no, no, no. I said um, I um, clean the windows on the planes. And they were like, really? And I said, yeah, you know, they put us up on a ladder and you get up the front with your Windex and your chucks and you clean the windows on the plane. So it depends. But generally I would say to people, I'm a reformed accountant and economist who thought that numbers were more important than people. Mm. And now I know there is nothing more important than how you engage and lead your people, Mm. especially in crises and challenges. And the work I do now and have done for the last two decades, um, I just thrive on it. And it's like Confucius who said, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day. My work never feels like work. Mm. I just feel so privileged to be able to do the things I do, which is really about challenging people's mindset and challenging people to think differently and to self-reflect, which lots of us are actually quite uncomfortable Mm. doing self-reflect reflection it's much easier to look at what's wrong and needs to be fixed in others and to also get people to take risks calculated risks and step out of their comfort zone and I think that's a lot of what I do is changing culture but you don't change this intangible thing called culture in and of itself, because culture is, in my view, the sum total of all the individuals who make up an organisation. So if you want to change culture, you actually have to change people. Culture is like the tune. The orchestra play their instrument and what they produce is the tune and it's either in tune or out of tune. Yeah. Now, as I said, I I feel like I'm quite blessed because I have been exposed to, you know, your genius before. But the one thing that I haven't been exposed to is uh, as much is where it all began, like because you you are considered to be one of the one yeah. of the top coaches in your field right now in the world of what you do. Um, but I'm yeah. curious as to what was the journey to get there because clearly you didn't pop out as Avril Henry, um, gunslinging no. uh, coach that can uh, <laughs> contain you know, no. the, the military chiefs of the world. Look, I think we should, many of us go back to our roots. And I think one of the things that I'm proud of is I've never forgotten my roots. I came from very humble um, upbringing. I grew up in a mining country town. I grew up in South Africa during apartheid. And um, a lot of people think they understand apartheid, but without going into detail, it wasn't just between black and white. Um, It was also between the English-speaking white South Africans and the Afrikaans-speaking South Africans. And I grew up as a girl in a predominantly Afrikaans town speaking English and I grew up in um, housing commission. So I grew up in a low-income family but I had an incredible grandmother and she would definitely have shaped my values, shaped my work ethic. And my, when I wrote my first book, I actually dedicated it to her. The only sad thing was she passed away a few years earlier. And in my um, acknowledgement, I said, this is for my grandmother, Pearl, who believed in me long before I believed in myself. And I think for people 
you know, here's one of the first lessons is to find that one person who believes in you and always has your back. And it's not always your parents. It's not always um, your best friend. It could be a teacher. It could be somebody who's mentored you. You know, if it is a parent, if it is a teacher, if it is your partner, then you're truly blessed. But for some of us, like me, it was my grandmother. And um, was my parents were shift par- work. Oh, I was going to say, so your parents weren't, were yeah. were due to work? Uh, yeah, they, they worked shift work. So basically my parents were asleep when we left for school in the morning. And when we got home from school in the afternoon, both my parents were at work. My mother would get home at 9 p.m. My father would get home at midnight. So from the age of 13, I had responsibility for my two younger sisters and I would have to get them, we called it supper, but effectively it was their dinner. I used to have to make sure that they did their homework. I would have to get things ready for school the next day day, pack everybody's lunch, pack everybody's bag, get my two younger sisters up in the morning for school, give them their breakfast, and then my mum would take the youngest, I'd wake her up after taking her a cup of tea in bed, and then she would take the two youngest to school, I would ride my bike to school, which was about five kilometres away. So I think... um, What I learned from that, and I think it's really some of the foundation to why I think I'm successful, is I'm uber organised. Like I'm OCD organised, very good at planning and organising things. And I'm also very self-disciplined because one of the things my grandmother said to me was she would say to me, God gave you a good brain, don't waste it. She would say to me, you need to study hard, you need to get out of this town and then you need to get out of this country. I mean, isn't that extraordinary for a white South African elderly woman to tell her grandchild from the age of 15, you've got to get out of here. And then obviously I was in year 10 and I went on to be ducks of my school and I um, won a scholarship from De Beers Anglo-American. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I did a double degree in accounting and economics rather than, and it was funny, you know why I did it? Because I went, People always need accountants to tell them whether they're making money or losing money. So while history and English literature were my first love, I decided to do accounting and economics. And within two years, um, I firstly went onto a graduate program with a diamond and mining company. And within two years, I'd saved just enough money for my airfare and $500 cash. And I emigrated to Australia when I was 22 without telling my parents. Wow. So I came to a country where I knew no one. And I arrived in Australia with five hundred bucks and, and two And this all started with Pearl, your grandmother, telling yes. you at the age of fifteen, you need to get the fuck out of here. But at what point yeah. did you go, yeah. okay, I know I need to get out of here. I'm gonna to go to Australia and I need five hundred dollars and as soon as I have it, I'm out. Like how did you how did that all get together? Okay, so Australia came about because one of the cool things at university was I had an Australian boyfriend Um. and his father was the Dean of Education at the University of Cape Town where I did my degree. So I learned a lot about Australia through that two-year relationship. And when I had um, graduated and I was working as a a finance grad, 
most South Africans, um, if they were going to leave, they were leaving because they could either see the writing on the wall or they didn't agree with apartheid. And I specialised in labour economics and I became absolutely outraged at not only the physical and economic costs of apartheid, but the human rights violations. And I started to become outspoken. So I was being watched by the security police. And the mere fact that I went to the University of Cape Town and did labour economics already put me on their radar. And in my last year at university, the security police tear gassed our university during our mid-year exams because we had protested about um, the lack of adequate schooling for black and coloured students. So... Um, I decided at one point I could either go to England, but the weather's pretty crappy, I could go to Canada or I could go to Australia because they're all English-speaking countries. And at the time that I was thinking about leaving the country, Australia was actively recruiting under its skilled migrant program South African doctors, lawyers, accountants, nurses and tradespeople. And I met the criteria for um, their skilled migrant visa. So I came to Australia and um, as soon as I could four years later took out citizenship and can I just say, it's my anniversary of coming to Australia next week. Wow. It is the best decision I ever made. And I like to tell this um, story because I think we all belong somewhere. And I think we all belong in a physical location. I think we all belong in relationships. And I think we all belong in particular careers. If you find one of those, you're blessed. If you find two, you're absolutely winning. If you find all three, you're unstoppable. Ooh. And for me, I never, ever felt at home mm. in the place of my birth. Mm. And I can remember as if it was yesterday, the day I got off the plane in Sydney, on the 27th of May, the sky was blue. I had on jeans and a camel coat and my little trolley bag. And I stepped out of the top of the plane because it was before they had air bridges. And I looked up. It was 9.20 in the morning. I looked up. I'm getting goosebumps even telling you this. I looked up. It was the bluest sky. And I had this overwhelming feeling of coming home oh, wow. and I just started crying oh. just started crying. and and I've always felt like that about Australia I've lived and worked overseas since coming here I've never missed South Africa um, I miss people but I don't miss I miss physical beauty but I don't miss what the country stands for um, what I um, have found I miss whenever I've lived overseas and travelled is um, I miss Australia because yeah, right. to me Australia is home. And so when you got here, when your boots are on the ground, you've, you're at this point you're already yeah. you're an accountant. <laughs> had you delved into economics yeah. at this point outside of your accounting? Um, no, look, I've always used economics in my finance job and even in my job in HR and diversity to assess 
the economic benefits of doing something or the opportunity cost of not doing something. But what I went into, um, I was one of the first women to work in structured finance in the early 80s when no one, even the tax office, didn't understand what structured finance was. And we did these big deals for Cathay Pacific Aircraft, Railway Rolling Stock in Victoria, coal loaders for Tease Brothers in Queensland. And I have to say the five years I spent there, I learned an enormous amount about business, about foreign exchange, because all of our deals were done in foreign debt, about the tax system, which is what I did for five years before becoming the first female manager at Barclays Bank when it got its foreign banking licence in 1985. So I guess another lesson there is I've done a lot of firsts in my life, you know, um, and that's because I'm a risk taker but I always assess the risk. I'm not afraid of failure, provided I'm willing, and I do this in my coaching. I say to people, you should never see failure as losing. You should always see failure as an opportunity to learn and to ask yourself the question, what did I learn? What would I do differently next time? Um, how will I succeed in the future? And what was missing? Is it a skill? Is it a resource? And you can turn every failure in life into a learning opportunity. And so, at this point, you're you're heading towards thirty. I'm going to assume you've been in the yeah. in, in accounting for four yeah. years. When did you start realizing that you wanted to work with people? Um, okay, so um, I. After Barclays, I yep. went to another investment bank, okay. UBS Warburg, and then I got sent to London. And another first was I was the first woman with small children who got sent to London with what they called a trailing spouse. It was normally the other way around. The man went, the woman went with her. And I worked in capital markets for two years, came back to Australia in the early 90s, and I was working at Westpac when um, Westpac had the biggest corporate loss in Australian business history in 1992. Mm -hmm. It lost $1.6 billion, which now looks like petty cash. And they brought in an American CEO to replace Frank Conroy, who went on to become the chairman of St George Bank. And people say it's folklore, but it's not. The day, well, the week he arrived, it wasn't the day he arrived, the week he arrived, they invited the top 100 in terms of the hierarchy <laughs> to meet with him in the boardroom and he walked into the room and he looked around the room and he said, where are all the women and where are all the people of colour? Because he was faced with a sea of what I call the PMS brigade, pale male style, okay? <laughs> so they're all Anglo-Saxon, they're all men, they're all over 50. There were three women in the room, I was one of them. And Australia is the second most multicultural society on earth, and there was no multiculturalism in that room. So he appointed Anne Sherry, who was an advisor to Paul Keating, the Prime Minister at the time, as the first female appointment. She was more senior than me. And she came in and she was head of um, human resources policy um, and what we today would probably call organisational culture and change and diversity and inclusion, although back then they used to call it equal employment opportunity and diversity. 
And she was in the room uh, about three months after she'd arrived. She was doing a presentation to the board and the executive team. No, I was, sorry. I was doing a presentation on um, some software that I thought we should invest in. And she was in the room. And after the meeting, she asked me to go and see her. And I was very excited because I knew who she was because she'd been Australia's representative at the UN um, for um, women and children. And so she had a high profile. I'd seen her speak at events and she came along. Uh, I went along to see her and she said, there was a really good presentation you did. It was very clear. It's easy to understand the numbers, the costs and also the benefits. And I said, thank you. And she said, I'd like you to come and work for me. And I said, what? In HR and change management? And she's like, yes. And I said, that's not a real job. <laughs> spoken like a true accountant and she we laugh about it we still laugh about it because she's a very close friend now she said you don't think I'm hiring you for your people skills do you because you don't have any <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like yeah touche yeah and I, I was going to go and work for her for two years, and that was my idea. And after that, I'd just go back to finance. And that was in March of 1994, and I've never gone back to finance. Mm. And, you know, another story to share with the listeners is we were the two women who introduced paid maternity and paid paternity leave in Australia in March of 1995. Wow. And I built the business case wow. and could show people that it costs more money to lose people, advertise and replace them and retrain people or train them from scratch than to pay paid maternity leave and get people to come back. And I remember saying that if we could um, increase the return to work rate of women from 50% to 65% within a three-year period, which is a good payback period for any project, we would recover the costs and the benefits would outweigh the costs. Well, our payback period was 19 months and right. today, 25 years later, Westpac's return to work rate for women is 92%. Holy shit. But the other benefit was that once we did it at Westpac, it was like dominoes, right? Then ANZ had to do it and then CBA and so it continued. And um, when my eldest daughter had her first baby just over a year ago, she rang me to say thank you for paid maternity leave. And people said to me, why did you do it? You already had kids. I said, because I knew how hard it was to do it without that. And so that's another story about um, resilience and perseverance. When everybody said it couldn't be done, and I think I learned that back then when I was a young girl looking after my sisters, listening to my grandmother, that perseverance is about not giving up. You know, for me, one of my life's philosophies is quitting's not an option. Mm. Find an alternative. And so I would always look for an alternative way of doing things, both professionally or in my personal life. And I think doing something of such significance created a bond between Anne Sherry and I Mm. that has continued for 25 years. Yeah, wow. What a legacy to be able to leave behind. Yeah, Even though you, although yeah, you haven't I'm gone really anywhere happy. yet, but it's what an incredible no, legacy. I'm not yet. 
And so yeah, what happened next? That's one of my things. So um, what was interesting was I spent um, three years working for Anne and we went from like the worst bank for people to women in particular to work for to the best bank. We were winning awards for employer of choice. Um, I won an award in New York for a training program I wrote called What Sex Got to Do With It? And it was a training program on sexual harassment and sex discrimination. It became one of the best selling training tools in Australia in the mid to late 90s. And I did that for a while. And then, um, interestingly, Anne was um, put into another job as the new CEO of Bank of Melbourne, which Westpac had just bought. And there were a few people who I believe thought I was having too much success with cultural change and they decided that maybe it was time for me to go back to finance. And they offered me a really good job in finance, which was also a promotion. And at this stage, I realised this was my passion. You know, I say to people again who I coach and when I'm doing presentations, you can be really good at something. Um, Like I was a good accountant, I was good at economics, I was good with numbers. But if you want to be excellent in what you do, you have to be passionate about it. Because I describe it as intellect comes from the head, passion comes from the heart. And when when you connect the intellect and the passion, you will be exceptional. And that's what had happened to me working in the space around people, culture, cultural change, diversity and inclusion. And so I left Westpac and I took on my very first HR director's role. And I did that for two years. Um, Then I went on to, funnily enough, I went back to investment banking, but this time as the regional head of people and culture. And during that time, I was named one of the top five HR directors in the country. And again, I keep coming back to the things that I think um, have enabled me to be successful is this self-discipline, the self-belief, being willing to stand up for the things I believe in. And in fact, my last job in corporate Australia, I stood up to the CEO and the executive team on issues that I thought Um, were not okay and that I was not prepared to act on as the HR director because I said an HR director provides advice to managers and leaders on how to motivate, manage and lead their people. But you also fundamentally walk a fine line of being the champion for employees who don't have a voice. Mm. And when you want me purely to be... um, in my view, a puppet for the leadership team, then you don't deserve to be the head of HR. And that's when I left corporate life. I was terrified. I still had my youngest daughter at a private school. And as we know, you know, I was wondering whether I was going to have to sell the house, the car, my body to fund her um, private school fees, so to speak. 
um, selling my body for science, that is, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, I uh, had my first um, paid gig in uh, two weeks after I left. And as they said, I've, I've never looked back. And look, over the years, um, the first so was five that, was years. Was that the point that, where you went solo? Is that the point where you went out on your own, was it? Yeah, right. 2003. Yep. And the first five years, right through till 2008, I was probably doing anywhere between 80 and 100 keynote gigs a year. I was the most booked female speaker in Australia. I focused on um, generational diversity, leadership and um, cultural change in the context of values. And then what's interesting, we should always see big changes as opportunities to reinvent ourselves because the GFC came along and a bit like the pandemic, the ass falls out of the speaking circuit. And so then I started to um, spend time coaching. I'd always been coaching, but maybe only two or three people at a time. And I'd got my coaching accreditation way back when I started my business. But I also started developing in-house um, leadership programs with a focus on communication, conflict resolution, and creating uh, work environments where people can excel. So things like having good feedback and having unbiased processes for promotion, those sorts of things. And then the pandemics come along and um, our leadership programs are on hold. I personally struggle with the concept of um, some of those things being taught online, um, I, whereas the coaching is all done by Zoom like we're doing now, and that has continued. And interestingly, the focus over the last couple of years has been helping people with change so that when this massive change came along, I was seen as one of the most skilled coaches in helping people with um, change. So at the moment, I'm coaching emergency services workers, people in defence who are working on things like um, rebuilding economies, um, people who are working on some of the pandemic stuff, um, and then preparing ambassadors for going overseas and when ambassadors are coming back after they've been out of the environment three or four years, helping them to adapt to the culture that it is now as opposed to the culture they've left behind. So that's it in a nutshell. And that's a that's a big walnut right there, let me tell you. Mm. I'm curious though, like, you know, obviously where you're most known for is in the people area, the softer skills, leadership, change management, which mm. is a pretty big kettle of fish. It's not something that, you know, mm. that most people have that level of breadth across. But in this time, like obviously change management, you know, managing change, leading in crises, that's an area of expertise mm. that you've been developing for quite some time. But what are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing right now? Because this is a, an incredible case study. Oh, I, I think we have so many yes. you know, lessons and, and learnings and warnings and examples yes. that are playing out. But at a yeah. broad level, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing people make in, in this moment right now as, as, as COVID starts to, to take, yeah. a, take us in a new direction? So that's a great question because the mistakes people are making now are the same mistakes they've made for decades. Yeah, I yeah. thought it might be. It's now more visible, okay, because you can't hide behind numbers. You can't hide behind demand being greater than supply or you can't hide behind good pricing. 
I, I describe it as the masks have all been taken away. The number one thing people get wrong is not listening. Mm. Yeah, not listening, okay? So, I mean, an obvious example, which we are all aware of, if, if you take a couple of global leaders, you think about Boris Johnson, everybody, all of the experts, let me rephrase that, all of the medical experts were saying social distancing, don't be touching people, use hand sanitizers. No, he goes around shaking everybody's hand, you know, being a wanker, and he gets covid now, if he'd listened, he wouldn't have got sick, right? Mm. And you look at um, people like the president of Brazil saying COVID is fake news. Well, they've got the third highest death rate in the world now, right? And you watch some of the news and they've got forests that are being cleared to dig graves, not for tens or hundreds of people, but thousands of people. And let's save the best for last, the orange genius in the White House, right? Um, he has to keep going back and revising his numbers on how many people are dying. And you've listened to him say, you know, it's a beautiful thing, it's beautiful, everything's beautiful, we've got a beautiful plan, we've got a beautiful vaccine, bullshit, right? So number one, start listening to people. Mm. Number two, ask for advice from the experts. You know, I think, um, and I'm not necessarily a Morrison fan, but I think Morrison had a huge lesson in humility and what happens when you don't listen to people and what happens when you stuff it up with the fires. Oh, the, so the come transition COVID, between yeah. fires and COVID poles apart. Poles apart. Yeah, poles apart. And the New South Wales um, emergency director who showed people what leadership was about. It was about listening. It was about asking for advice. It was about empathy and not talking about yourself, right? So you look at that and now Morrison and his government have been listening. Um, the bipartisanship between the big political parties has been extraordinary. Um, empathy, looking at how do we help people, not sticking to the hard and fast rules that were always part of their political brief. And John Hopkins, one of the most respected medical schools in the world, just announced last week that Australia is number one, together with New Zealand, for managing the pandemic, for managing um, the way we have done lockdown, social distancing, and we've also been ranked number one in the world for the way our health system has been able to deal with it to the extent that there are now only 15 people in the whole of Australia still in ICU, whereas the rest of the world, they don't have enough ICU beds and people are dying. So, you know, in... in if I were, and I'm a person who says, you know, the power of three, remember three things. The three things are listen to people, genuinely listen actively, ask for advice, and the third is to collaborate with people to get the best outcomes. And then, you know, if, if you want to take it one step further and let's go for five and people can remember five things, it's also about being authentic as a leader. You know, I love the quote by um, um, Oscar Wilde who said, you know, be yourself, everyone else is taken. 
I actually think you should be yourself because it's the one thing you can do better than anybody else, you know. Yeah. And and when you're authentic, um, people believe you. You become credible, you know. And then the last thing is um, it's about demonstrating empathy. I never think of myself as the most empathetic person on earth, but I know how to demonstrate empathy. I know how to ask people, how are you doing? What can I do to help? Is there any way that I can make things easier for you and just showing that care. So can I say on the upside, I reckon the best thing about COVID has been this rise in community spirit and this Mm. desire by most human beings to want to help others. We are seeing people doing things that they would never have done before. We're seeing organisations like breweries who can't sell their beer making hand sanitizer and fashion houses making masks and surgical gowns. I mean, I just think that's extraordinary. A lot of people always ask, like, Kerwin, how is it you present so authentically? And again, I'm, this is not about me, but I also have this, you know, this question from team members and clients around the same aspect of leadership. And I, I see the way that you you um, you work the room. And the, the beautiful thing is you're exactly who you are off stage as you are on stage. And that to me is, a, is the, the real yeah. test of, you know, the authenticity of an individual. But one of the things I've observed, and I saw this with Morrison as well, like when you look at his press conferences in the bushfires, mm-hmm. and you look at his press conferences now. It's not. It, there's. It's not. Even, it's not the same person. Like there's. It's almost no, like there's been a veil no. that's been lifted, and we're seeing a, a much greater yeah. degree of transparency or authenticity, if not, if not yes. at least yeah. a very solid yeah. demonstration of one. Yeah. But to go above myself, Scott, and you, why do you think so many people struggle when it comes to, you know, demonstrating high levels of authenticity in a leadership environment or a leadership scenario? This is my theory, and it's only my theory, okay? I think it's because people so desperately want to be liked and want to be um, recognised and appreciated that they spend an enormous amount of time trying to be what they think other people want them to be. And, you know, I'll be honest and say in my 20s and 30s, I did that um, because I thought that was the way that you got ahead, that was the way you got accepted, but I also discovered it made me very unhappy because I wasn't being myself. And then I think, you know, um, you get to your 40s and I like to think that this is what smart people do Um, and you would identify with this. And this is not about being arrogant, but if you're smart, you want to continuously improve. And you think, well, how can I improve? And so I got to my 40s, and I think this happens to many people, and you might be the same. And if you get there before 40, well, good on you. You start to think, well, no, how do I um, contribute and help others Um, while being comfortable with myself as best I can. Mm. So you seek to please the people you care about. And then you've got all this to look forward to, Kerwin. You get to 50, and if you're really smart, you don't give a shit what anybody thinks about (laughs) you. You're going to say you don't give a fuck. You disappoint me. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that. Even the people (sighs) who you love. 
And I've got the most wonderful mentor, Wendy McCarthy, who's been my mentor for 25 years, and she's fast approaching her eighth decade. And when she actually told me that when I was in my 40s, she said, when you turn 50, you won't give a shit. Um, And she said, when you get to 60, you'll tell people how it is, to which my children (laughs) responded with, no, 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 she's already doing that. And I think This is the only area of life I think I've matured faster than than, than any. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't give a fuck and I speak my mind constantly. (laughs) Well, do you know what I think it also is, Kern, and this is very important for your um, female clients and listeners on this podcast, is women... Um, are more likely to seek to please people because we've been socialised to be good girls and good mothers and good wives and good friends. And I go, that's just bullshit. Just be a winning woman by being yourself. Mm. You know, you're never going to please everyone. Um, and I found that Can I extend that invitation more... to men as well? Because I think there's a lot of men right now Absolutely. that are in the same position where they feel Absolutely. they have to be something they're not. Yeah, there's so many models yeah. of what masculinity should be and shouldn't be. I think a lot of men, yes. like women, are confused as to how do they show up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is so true. And I think what people will discover is when I think it's a it's an absolute case of self-love because self-belief can only come out of self-love. So and I think what people think self-love is about is, oh, I'm gorgeous, I'm beautiful, I love myself. That's not self-love. Mm-hmm. Self-love is going, I know my strengths and what I'm good at. I know where I suck. And the areas where I suck, I can get people to help me with that or it's something I delegate. So I joke about the fact I will never be good at crocheting, but I can do tax returns. So I'll pay somebody else to crochet and I'll do their tax return, like a barter system. But self-love, in my view, is about accepting yourself the way Mm. you are and looking for ways to continuously improve yourself as a human being. And when you have that, you then have self-belief and self-confidence and you don't need other people's approval. And it's so liberating. Mm. I really wish I'd been there at 30 because I certainly would have told a lot more people to fuck off. I, I can relate to that in so many ways as a leader, mm-hmm. uh, as a business person, but especially as a human being. And I think, you know, that's probably the biggest journey of all is, you know, getting to that point where we can really accept ourselves. And I, I think you nailed that. Like self-love is really self-acceptance and being able to accept ourselves, our geniuses, our dunces and everything in between. And I still remember for me personally getting to that point where I used to speak on stage up until maybe uh, 10 years ago in a suit and then before I knew it, it was then um, with a tie and then there was no tie. And then eight years later, I was then doing it with you know, just a collared shirt and then there was no jacket and then there was a jacket with a T-shirt, and, but I was still in a suit. But I still remember the day where I was like, I got to the point where I was wearing jeans and sneak, uh, I think maybe polished shoes and, and but a collared shirt. And I remember going, I was sitting at the, uh, the morning event. I was like, fuck this. This is not who I am. It's never been who I am. I've never felt comfortable in a suit in my entire life. And I went, fuck it. And I put a T-shirt on. I went downstairs and presented a, a five-day program. But I still remember everyone in the room who knew me coming up afterwards and going, I've never seen you in, in such flow. I've never seen you perform at such yeah. a level. And it just kept on happening. Yeah. And I realized, man, when we can accept ourselves for who we are, we really do get out of our fucking yeah. way. And we're able to perform yeah. because we're no yeah. longer thinking yeah. in unison with performance of how do I look? Yeah. How am I coming across? Do people yeah. like me? It's not even uh, yeah. a thought that enters the mind. 
I love when Helen Mirren was interviewed recently because she's about 72 now and they said, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? She said, I'd tell my 16-year-old self to tell people to fuck off more often. Mm. And, you know, I think to myself, there many of us put up with so much bullshit and so much negativity and so much judgment from others which is not good for you. And, you know, people laugh when I say I believe in family and friend audits. You know, um, my Christmas card list over two decades got very short. And and that's the whole piece about not just do people um, add value and bring joy to your life, but do you add value to somebody's life? And uh, um, are you playing an important part? And I think so many people hold on to friendships and relationships, both romantic and with family members, that are just toxic and not good for them. And I'm quite open about the fact that one of the relationships that I let go because it was so toxic for me was my relationship with my father. And I was estranged from my father for the last 10 years of his life. Mm. And people went, how can you do that? And I said, I'm doing it for me because I can't be what he wants me to be. I totally understand. And that can be hard, especially when you've got people with different value systems looking at you and and judging you based on their own lens. One of the things I sometimes struggle with, and I did a lot of work on this a few years ago and I've come really good. And then um, the the last nine weeks, I've seen characteristics of it popping through again at the intensity that I've been working at, like probably everyone else. But how do you balance truth versus people's feelings? You know, because one of the things that I'm really good at is I'm really good at telling the truth. I'm really good at doing it in a very direct and what I would consider to be a chronologically efficient way because I don't use language to pad it. I just get straight to the fucking point. You know, it was... Chronologically efficient. That's already a problem, Gerwin. <laughs> I'm fucking well aware, trust me. Um, but but there is this point where, you know, there's this almost this this spectrum of energy that we can deploy the language with. But what I've discovered mm-hmm. is once you reach a certain level of intensity of communication... Okay, the, 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 the stakes rise, pressure rises, yeah. and one or two things happen. People will either perform at a much higher level or they'll trigger into stress and they'll actually they'll degrade their performance capabilities and they'll actually go yes. backwards. Yes. Um, and again, obviously, it's an individual thing. Every, every person is different. Every person's point is the same. But I'm curious from your perspective, when you're working with these you know, CEOs and chiefs of defense and you know, high big players, how do you coach someone who's got a knack for being really direct but also has a little bit yeah. of a tendency of sometimes, you know, uh, offending people or upsetting them, not because they're being rude or obnoxious, just because of the intensity at which they communicate? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And um, the advice that I often give people is this. When you are in a really stressful situation, that is the one point at which you absolutely need to be doing two things. One is called the breadth. And people, even like SAS soldiers and um, the US Marines, the SEAL team do it, 
breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four, literally because it brings down stress levels, it brings down the heart rate. And so physiologically, you're calming yourself down. And the second is to be very conscious of the language you use. And I have often coached people and said, if you're really angry or you're really pissed off, and I say the same to you, Kerwin, um, it is better to walk away and say, can we take a rain check in 10 minutes or in half an hour? Mm. And the language you use is so important. So um, if you start from um, how it is from your perspective, so instead of me saying to you, you're always late and you're always missing the deadlines, you will become defensive. But if I say to you, I need you to be on time as these reports are going to be late to my boss. So you start with how it is for you rather than judge the other person mm. or you never listen to me. Rather than say you never listen to me, what you say is I need you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say because it's important. And I just, I'm a great believer in the power of language. And a lot of the coaching I do with senior people is about changing their language. See, people like you, myself, and a lot of the people I coach, we are in the disc modeling, we're direct, we're driven, we doers, we want results. The problem then becomes that we become impatient when other people mm. can't keep up with us. Mm. And another thing that I say to people is for high achievers, you have to be very aware that the standards you set for yourself are fine, but it's not fine to set those same standards for others because they might not be able to achieve them. And all that you then achieve, pardon the pun, is you make those people feel crap about themselves. Mm. So it's also as a leader knowing what is the limit or the boundary for your people and not to set the bar at the same level that you set it for yourself, mm. which they can't achieve. Yeah, I think that's Some of our kids. Yeah, and look, I, I see that. Big lesson for me. Yeah, it's a massive lesson for me right now because I'm obsessed with performance in every aspect of my life, um, and I and I recruit to that. I recruit, you know, talent that that have that that pedigree as well. But yeah, the one thing I find myself doing, um, not on the regular, as I said, this was more of an issue probably four or five years ago, but I've noticed it creeping back in in the last eight weeks. And I think you know I could easily sit there and say, well, I'll, you know, I have been working for eleven weeks straight, Kerwin, and so you know, just be gentle on yourself. But at the same time, I'm seeing the impact that it's having. I'm seeing the impact it's having on you know certain team members, but also certain groups that aren't even involved in the certain teams. Um, and so, so for why me, have you been working for eleven weeks? Uh, look, I'm obviously, just doing a bit of coaching now. Yeah, look, I do need a bit of coaching. Look, it's not been eleven <laughs> weeks straight. I did have um, you know uh, a week off last week, but you know what it's like when you have a week off, then everything else pops up that needs to be done. And so for me, we've been going through like everyone else a massive pivot. And my goal has been, mm. let me lead from the front. Let me lead the team from the front. Let me lead the clients from the front. And let me just show, you know, what people are actually capable of. But I've, I've noticed, especially in the last probably three or four weeks, it's come at a massive cost. You know, I, I had my mm. first, what I'd call, <clears throat> yeah, I, I had my first physical crash last Tuesday. And I haven't had a physical crash. It's got to be in like seven or eight years where I actually woke up and I was like, fucking mm. hell, I'm actually crashed out. But in saying that, I'm now I've spent the last seven days reflecting and going, okay, what are the things that need to change? What are the things that I need to do? How do I address? How do I make kindness prevail again? Uh, and I'm just working back through that process. 
Um, but it's like you say, I think leadership in many respects is a game of reflection. You know, we've got to be able to look back so that we can move forward in, in, in more efficient and effective ways. I am just uh, the victim of like, I guess, many other people who got, well, fuck, I thought I'd solved that problem. You know, I thought I'd, you know, um, dealt with that part of myself, but it's creeping back in again. And so outside of just general self-awareness and reflection, like if, if you're working with a high level exec that is having, you know, issues around communication and you've, you've had this conversation already, what's the next step? Well, the next step, um, and I've actually just told somebody this in um, the coaching I did, I said, you need to take time out. Mm. I said, you're burning yourself out and you're burning others out. And taking a day off is not enough. And I have found it fascinating, probably because I'm a little bit older than people like yourself and people like Dr. Adam Fraser and a whole range of people who have worked with. not considered old anymore, Avril. No. And, and I've watched many of you go, I've got to pivot this business, I've got to turn it around. What I did was for the first four weeks was just say to my team, let's just get the basics done. Let's just get back to people. Let's wait and see what the lockdown's going to do. And I think um, I have come out of it better, even though um, I've had my good days and my bad days. But the other thing I do is I get people to rate themselves. This is so simple. Zero is life is so awful, I want to die. And 10 is I've had three Red Bulls for breakfast and I'm bursting out of my skin right? And um, David and I had a day probably about a month ago where we woke up and we always say to each other, what are you today? And I went, I'm a three. He's like, I'm a three too. I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the dogs for a long walk on the beach, which we did at 10 o'clock. We're going to come back and we've got to watch a feel-good movie and we're basically going to declare that today is not Thursday, it is Saturday. (laughs) And that's what we did. And funnily enough, on the real Saturday, we both put in about half a day because I think we drive ourselves too hard. And when we have a bad day or a crash, we think we need to punish ourselves. It's absolutely at that time that we need to be um, more compassionate towards ourselves. And Um, One of my keynotes that has been very popular over the last couple of years is the one that I call self-care is not selfish. Mm. And that's about what does self-care mean from, you know, and and you're pretty good at most of it but not all of it. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't crash. But it's the stuff around diet. It's the stuff about um, getting enough sleep. It's the stuff about enough exercise. And then people think if they've done that, it's enough. But, no, it's also about surrounding yourself Mm. with people who bring joy to you, Um, removing toxic people, having mentors, having sounding boards. Um, spending time reflecting. So I make senior people take time out and um, I I give them things to do, homework to do, like I'd like you to spend three hours outdoors with no phone. Mm. I go, you can't be serious. I go, yeah, I am. I'm very serious. (laughs) Well, that's the conclusion I got to and that's why last week I took the week off but I just found myself, I had that week off but then 
taking it, having a week off and taking a week off, they're not necessarily in the same category, right? Um, but it's it's interesting because I'm at that point now. I'm like, yeah, I really am aware. If, in order for me to be a better father, better leader, better entrepreneur, better strategist, just a better human being, yeah, yeah I'm. I, I need to take some time off. So, yeah. And I'll give you one more tip, please. Not just for the listeners, but especially for you. Guilt is a pointless useless emotion unless you've hurt someone's feelings. Mm. So if you feel guilty for taking a week off after you've had a physical crash, you might as well have been at work. Mm. And, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time now coaching people on how do you shift from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? Um, and funnily enough, I'm actually doing postgrad studies in that at the moment. I'm doing my postgrad in positive psychology and well-being, and it's the physical, mental, and emotional well-being. And one of the things that I've loved about this course is learning the practicalities behind how you move from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, where um, a fixed mindset says, when I crash, I now have been doing something wrong. I'm a bad person. I need to punish myself. A growth mindset says, um, what did I learn from that? Well, I've been working too hard. I haven't been taking enough breaks. I've been driving myself too hard. Okay, I need to take a couple of days off. I'm going to do some beach walks with my son. I'm going to go and have a massage if I can while being socially distant. <laughs> um, but it's about thinking about what are the things that will bring you joy mm. that will restore not just your physical well-being, but a physical crash is a manifestation of a mental and emotional crash mm. where your mind and emotions go, sorry, I'm checking out and the only way I can check out is to shut down the mm. body. I know when I've pushed myself too hard, I get migraines yeah. and migraines wipe me out for two or three days and it's the body just going, you need to stop. It's so interesting. This is the first time in my living history. Like my physical crash last week was, it only happened for a day at this point, but it was feathers, bricks and trucks, right? To me, that was a feather. But what, yeah. was, but what was really interesting was historically up until let's call it five years ago, the four years ago, the only way that I'd get a break, a real proper break yeah. is if I had a complete, like a complete crash, like whether that yeah. crash ended up as yeah. a, as a, you know, yeah. manifested as a flu or a virus or me hurting my back or, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and when this happened last Tuesday, I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to take this as a feather, maybe a, a little bit of a brick in there as well. Um, and it's interesting because everything you're saying exactly where I went. I was like, shit, you know, what have I learned? But it was almost like this intense mm -hmm. period of time hijacked, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of lessons from the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I don't know, I think there's probably many business owners out there who could maybe relate to this. And it's not like I felt I was in survival mode because we're in such a strong position. But I did feel a very high level of obligation to lead from the front, a very high level of... And it wasn't an obligation. That means you have to lead by example. Exactly. And if you're working your butt off, everybody else it. thinks they've got to do it. And in the words of Peter Senji, in order to go faster, you, you need down. to slow down. Slow is fast. Mm. Slow is fast. Mm. And uh, I couldn't think of a better way to to wrap up the conversation. Avril, you are incredible. I, I get so much from talking oh, to you every you. time I do. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you, where can they find more about Avril Henry? Uh, our website, www.averildhenry.com. We've got blogs. We'll have some new showreels up. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You are phenomenal. Uh, and I can hand on heart Thank say you. for anyone who's looking for a speaker that's going to blow the room, 
leadership, culture, performance, um, anything to do with people, you are a phenomenal human being. Thank you so much, Avril. I can't wait to connect with you again. Thank you so much for having me today and I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. You will very very soon. soon. Thanks, darling. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.